Well, let's, uh, let's take our Bibles together and uh, turn to our passage for this morning, Genesis chapter 37. We're looking at verses 2 through 11. Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 through 11. That's our Bible text for this morning. Not sure where that is in the church Bible, uh, but it's Genesis, so you can find it. First book. Well, let's give our attention to God's word being read. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. This is God's word. I invite you to pray uh, with me. And this is a prayer taken from a 16th, 17th century uh, Reformation liturgy. So please join me. Almighty good and merciful Father in heaven, we humbly submit ourselves and bow before your majesty. We ask you from the depths of our hearts that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such a deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither nor the thorny cares of this life choke it, but that as seed sown in good ground it may bring forth 30, 60, or a hundredfold as your eternal wisdom is ordained. We ask this, for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord in and through us. Amen. Well, every family has a story. Uh, mine was filled with mostly good, good times, the occasional bad time like every family. Uh, I have two brothers. We got along mostly. Uh, at times, uh, admittedly, we, we fought and there was some rivalry, and I, and I do have to admit in retrospect that I was probably favored a little bit by my parents, and that's probably because I tried to please them in general, uh, and any rebellion that I had was hidden, <laughs> and uh, my older brother just so, so much pushed against the boundaries that their, their uh, concern was mostly directed at him. Um, getting together with my brothers is a pretty rare occurrence now um, since my mom died, but we get along well now. Things are good between us. Now, my, my family story is rather unremarkable. I still wonder about some things. Uh, 
Uh, there's no what ifs in the world, I know that. But I wonder what it would have been like if my, my father lived beyond his 52nd year. I wonder what kind of grandfather he would have been to my children. I wonder what kind of relationship I'd have had with him as an independent adult. I wonder about these things. And now that I'm a, a father and a grandfather, these, these wonderings, these curiosities become even more nostalgic on a day like this. And I think of the joy that I, I receive from my own children and grandchildren. And then I wonder how they will tell their own family story after I'm gone. Well, our text begins, these are the generations of Jacob. And it's not, it's not a one-dimensional account of who beget whom. No, what it is is a story of, of a unique family with their dynamics. There's a father, a patriarch, who is in this unique lineage because that lineage began with a divine pronouncement to Abraham, his grandfather. Now, for the Israelites, that, that nation, the offspring of this family, they're on the precipice of entering the land of Canaan, the promised land. Knowing their story was not just simply gathering a, a series of facts, but it was the story of God's provin providential governance of people and places and events ultimately to bring to fulfillment the very promises that God made to them and the making and the saving of a nation called Israel. Now in this part of the story that, that we read um, of Jacob, uh, I want us to look at this story under three headings, things that to me just sort of fell out of the text. Um, three headings, favor, revelation, and suffering. And through that lens, I want us to see how, how God used the actions of men to accomplish his saving purposes. That's, that's providence. God uses the actions of men and whatever they do for good or evil, ultimately to enfold them into his big purposes, his saving purposes. But beyond that, I also want us to see from this text how certain aspects of Joseph's life even though it's the generations of Jacob, it really switches to focus on Joseph, how, the, how aspects of Joseph's life point to the greater reality in Christ. It's a sort of a, a type. So let, let's get to it as we unpack this text this morning. The first heading I have is, is favor, favor. I don't have a favorite color, but I do have other kinds of favorites. I, I prefer beef over chicken, so we're having brisket today for dinner. I like coffee more than tea. I prefer Apple over Android. Uh, some of you are very particular about your phone operating system. I like a car more than a truck. I play hockey, not basketball. I'd rather drive than fly. Spotify is better than iTunes, just my opinion. And I do have a favorite wife, but I only have one, so there's that. And I plan to keep it that way, by the way, so I'm not gonna change that. But I don't have a favorite child. In fact, the, the idea that parents would even think or, or make that known to their children that they have favorites, that, that is offensive to me. It troubles me. But that's Jacob in our text. That's Jacob. Or Israel, as the Bible text tells us in verse three. Verse three says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Well, what is this robe of many colors, or as Andrew Lloyd Webber says, the Technicolor dream coat, 
Right, what is this thing? Archaeologists have found evidence of, of royal garments like this from that era. They're really made from a patchwork of many different colored cloths. But if you have a, if you notice, there's a little footnote in your Bible if you're using the English Standard Version. Um, there's a little footnote that that could be long-sleeved robe. And a long-sleeved garment would be very different than a typical cloak. Those typical cloaks worn in that day would not be a sewn garment in any way. It would just be a large, rectangular, uh, effectively a robe with a, a hole cut in the middle for the head and just wrapped around the body. So a sleeved garment would have been something special. And in wearing it, Joseph would have been constantly displaying his father's particular delight in him. It was meant to be a garment honoring him. So, so why is it that Joseph was favored? We're just told he loved him more than any of his other sons. Why did, why did Joseph favor him more? Well, as I was thinking about this and trying to understand the, the scope of the story, I thought, first of all, Joseph loved him for love. <laughs> now, that may seem like a redundant statement, but, but what I mean is this. Jacob, I said Joseph loved for love. Jacob loved Joseph for love. Jacob loved Joseph's mother, Rachel, over all of his wives. He had a favorite wife. That's Genesis 29, 18, and also in 20. Now, Jacob was tricked into marrying Rachel's older sister, Leah. She had weak eyes. And Bilhah and Zilpah, they were also wives, but they were sort of second-tier wives. They were really concubines given by his primary wives for the sake of producing more offspring. Rachel was really his focus. She was the one he loved. Now, Rachel had been barren for many years, but when she finally conceived and gave birth, he was given the name Joseph. Joseph was the son of her deepest longing. And for, for Jacob observing his wife and, and seeing Joseph come into the world, his love no doubt extended to his son. His favor for his wife no doubt extended to his son. Now, this is the first time in, in Genesis that we're specifically told that Jacob favored Joseph. But I think this was hinted at earlier. You see this, for example, when Jacob, if you recall several chapters ago, when Jacob was fearful of meeting his, his brother Esau, he thought that Esau was going to attack and kill him. That's Genesis 33. What, what Jacob did was he divided his family in, into, into different groups, as he was approaching meeting up with Esau, in the front of the line he put his concubines and their, and their sons and then Leah and then last of all, Rachel. If, if the others are gonna be killed, at least Rachel. And even there, uniquely, Joseph is mentioned with Rachel where the other sons are not mentioned. Now you might ask the question, why was Benjamin recently, more recently born? Why, why was he not, not Jacob's favorite? Well, of course, Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. And perhaps, perhaps just in my mind as I thought about it, the association of, of Benjamin's birth with Rachel's death, perhaps that would have tempered to some degree jo uh, Jacob's affection for Benjamin. Though later, after Jacob presumes Joseph is dead, he's not, but he presumes he's dead, certainly has transferred that favor to Benjamin. But I would just say bottom line is that Joseph was favored by Jacob because he was the son of Jacob's deepest longings both for Rachel and for Rachel's own desire for a son. And so I would just simply take it it was a unique, a unique relationship. So Jacob favored Joseph for love. 
But more than that, he favored Joseph for character. Uh, verse 2 says, And Joseph brought a bad report of them, and he's talking about his brothers, to their father. Now, we're not told anything about the content of that bad report. And I understand that as you read this, it could be viewed negatively, like Joseph is some kind of toddler. Hey, Dad, you know what the other guys are doing? Nah, nah, you know, that kind of thing. But I don't, I don't think that's what's in view here. I, I think that it reveals that Joseph had a moral compass that his brothers did not. He saw his brothers behaving in such a way that did not honor the Lord or did not honor their father. So Joseph's character qualities, we will see, will later be put to the test. Later on, when he's in Egypt, he'll be tempted by Potiphar's wife. He resisted that temptation, not primarily out of the fear of Potiphar, his master, but, he, but as he describes to Potiphar's wife, it would be great wickedness and a sin against God. You see this, this moral compass, this sense of, of a desire for righteousness was present in Joseph from a young age when he was still 17. But beyond that, it also, the text also says that Joseph, this is verse three, was the son of his old age. Joseph was Jacob's son of his old age. Now, that could also be translated to say son of old age to him. Son of old age to him. And, and that's a Hebrew expression suggesting Joseph possessed wisdom beyond his years. Wisdom. And the Bible's definition of wisdom, the source of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And, and folly is associated with disobedience and, and rebellion. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And I think Joseph demonstrated that fear of the Lord from a young age. So Jacob's favoring of his son was for his character. It had a moral component. So I take it that, that Jacob's love for Joseph was not superficial, but substantive. And again, it just seems to me that Joseph had this awareness of the Lord that perhaps his brothers did not. And that faith I can see to Jacob who'd heard the promises of God affirmed to him from the voice of God. I can see that Jacob's, uh, sorry, Joseph's faith was endearing. And I think we know this, brothers and sisters in Christ. There, there's something, if you're a Christ follower today, there is something endearing about those who love your God like you love your God, those who trust Christ like you trust Christ. There's a kind of a supernatural connection there that goes beyond blood. And it doesn't mean favoritism in this world, but there's just a, this, this longing. And as parents, we long for our own children to believe. We long for them to have that same hope. And for those that do share that hope, it's not favoritism, but there's there's a shared joy in knowing we serve the same Christ. But that said, uh, Jacob's favoritism of Joseph provoked his other sons. And I suppose uh, one might make the case that Jacob's 
favoritism was unwise as a parenting strategy, but that's not the point of the text. So let me just summarize this. I take it that Jacob favored Joseph mainly because Joseph was favored by God. That is to say, God was gracious to him. I'm not gonna credit any of Joseph's abilities with something that he mustered in himself. God selected Joseph for a purpose, poured out his favor upon him, and that built in him a desire for what is righteous. And we'll see other aspects of that grace in a moment. So, like I said, I take it that Joseph was favored by Jacob because Joseph was favored by God. And as Joseph's life unfolds, we'll see how God's grace was particularly at work in him to fulfill a particular saving mission for his whole family. Indeed, God chose Joseph for that purpose. That's whether he was initially aware of it or not. Now, I think think Jacob's favoritism for Joseph, I think it hints at perhaps even even typifies God's unique favor upon his eternal son. The son of God who took on a human body, who was given the name Jesus. The name itself means God saves, which revealed his mission. God the Father verbally affirmed that special relationship with his son, God the Father verbally affirmed that at Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, 17. God the Father affirmed that verbally, again, when Jesus was glorified, transfigured before the eyes of his disciples. That's Matthew 17, 5. And on that mountain, Peter, James, John, they heard God say, the same as they heard or others heard at at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And as Jesus' life unfolded, His saving act on the cross was preceded by a unique revelation such that his own disciples would recognize in him and understood that his words, Jesus' words to be words of eternal life, John 6, that's the very truth that was affirmed by God on the mountain when about Jesus, God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Now Joseph was, was brushed aside by his brothers. He was marginalized. To our contemporary culture, Jesus has been brushed aside. Jesus' moral perfection is questioned. Jesus' divinity is is denied. Jesus' words are mocked. His claim to be the truth, John 14, 6, that's considered nothing more by the culture as some sort of self-aggrandizing statement. And that would be true if it were not for the fact that while Jesus is truly man, he is unquestionably truly God. And because he is God, the only son from the Father, he is, as the gospel writer John introduced him in his gospel. He is one who is full of grace and truth. Before we move on, I want to make this statement. How you regard Jesus has everything to do 
with whether you will see God's salvation. How you regard Jesus has everything to do with whether you will see God's salvation. If he's just a moral voice that annoys you sometimes, if he is, if you look at him questioningly like, well, maybe that's true about him or maybe it's not true about him what the Bible says. Unless you regard him as the divine son of God who came to this earth, assumed a human body, who lived a perfect life that you could not, who died a hideous, physically torturous death, but more than that, who carried on his own body the hideous, disgusting sin that is mine and yours in order to take it to the grave if you've trusted in him. Unless you see him for who he truly is and for what he's accomplished, that is everything to do with whether you will know God's salvation or not. And let me urge you before we move on, trust Christ. And if you trust him, it's gonna change everything about your life. Well, that brings me to the second heading, which is revelation. Revelation. Now there are times, there are times when I awake from sleep and I remember my dreams. Those, those dreams are often filled with, with images and themes somehow related to things that have been on my mind. Sometimes they're combined together in very odd ways. Uh, there's a, a recurring theme in, in uh, sort of a nightmare that I have. It's, uh, it's a little revealing, but it's standing up in front of you and having nothing to say. <laughs> Or speaking, and I know what's coming out of my mouth is, mouth is absolutely incoherent. That horrifies me. Being unprepared to preach. Anyway, my, often though, my dreams are just simply bizarre. Just weird. And I've never regarded them as anything but the figment of my own imaginations or, or just the kind of a culmination of my thoughts in the day. But... Our Bible text tells us that Joseph had two dreams. These dreams had, had identical themes, that of him rising to prominence and his brothers honoring him, humbling themselves before him. And in the second dream adds the, the implication that, that his parents would likewise honor him and bow before him. Now, I don't know if in experiencing these dreams and then telling them to his brothers that he had a sense that they were divine revelation but he certainly knew that they were worth sharing. And since we can look ahead to the end of the story, we can find out that indeed they were from the Lord. We know that. So why is it, I ask myself the question, why is it that God revealed his plan for the future to Joseph in a dream? Why? Well, first, Joseph, I believe, received this revelation for the sake of his brothers. Joseph keep mixing up Joseph and Jacob. Joseph received this revelation for the sake of his own brothers. Verse five, now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Indeed, what I am saying is 
God gave Joseph those dreams so that his brothers would hate him. Sharing the content of that dream further provoked his brothers to hatred. Not only was he favored by their father, now he was telling them that his father's honor for him was completely justified by that dream. That they would one day bow to him in submission. Now again, I, I can understand as Joseph's brothers go, really? You're just a kid. He's the second to last born. How does he factor of any importance in this family? We're going to bow to you? We can understand, humanly speaking, that this seems crazy. So the purpose of the dream was not to convince Joseph's brothers that it would be true, but rather to give them more reason to hate him, to allow them to give full expression of their evil intentions. And we'll see that in the next section. They were ready to kill Joseph. They end up selling him as a slave. We'll see that next week. And eventually he'd end up in Egypt, and that mattered. So it was for Joseph's brothers. Now, I mentioned at the beginning the word providence. Joseph's brothers are completely responsible for their hatred of, their, of Joseph. God is not responsible for that. But providence is God working in such a way to envelop human actions and roll them into his purposes such that his plan is fulfilled. It's a supernatural ability that God in his limitless knowledge and limitless power accomplishes. In a sense, allowing us as people to give full expression to the freedoms if, we sh if he should allow it, even to sin. But then God enfolding that somehow into his cosmic plan. Well, second, I see that the Lord revealed uh, his future plans to Joseph in a dream for, for the sake of Joseph himself. For Joseph. Joseph benefited from this. And this was to prepare him for future service. And we're going to get to that story when he's in Egypt. Lord willing, we'll get there. But when Joseph was a prisoner in Egypt, he had the opportunity to interpret dreams of two fellow prisoners. And that paved the way. It opened up the opportunity for him to interpret the dream of the, of the king of the nation, Pharaoh. And that opportunity allowed for Joseph's status to be elevated. And then as the story unfolds, where his brothers eventually come to him, bowing, not knowing who he is, begging that they would get grain from him, the very thing that he dreamed. But third, I see that the reason the Lord revealed his plans to Joseph in a dream was also for Jacob, his father. Now, Jacob's interpretation is spot on, verse 10, but his first response to Joseph is to rebuke him. He rebukes him. The idea that his entire family would that would bow before him, that's, that's offensive. And yet verse 11 tells us, but his father kept the saying in mind. I love that. He kept the saying in mind. And, and I can see him, Jacob's hearing these dreams, speaks out loud, rebukes him, but in his mind going, there's something here, there's something here, and he kept the saying in mind. You see, I, I think that Jacob took note of some of the things that Joseph was saying about his dreams because Jacob understood that, that he found out things about his own future from the Lord in a dream. Go, he heard from God in a dream about possessing the land of Canaan. He heard from God in a dream the, success, 
the success that he would have in breeding before he got away from Laban, his father-in-law. The Lord gave him this in a dream. Now as we just pause for a moment and I think it's worth asking the question, does God speak through dreams today? Now, as I shared, my dreams are bizarre, mostly expressions of fear. I've never experienced God speaking in a dream, and I'm not saying that it can't happen, but I will say this. We don't need them. We don't need God to speak in a dream. Jacob, Joseph, they didn't have the book. God revealed himself in unique ways. They didn't have the book. There is no more valuable revelation from God than this collection of 66 book, books written over many centuries from Genesis to Revelation. It reveals and exalts the living word of God who became flesh. This collection of words is living and active and it penetrates to the very core of our beings and it discerns us unlike any other book on the planet. When we pick up this book, it reads us. It's living and active. It makes us, it makes us wise to salvation. Its overarching message is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, 2 Timothy 3.15 and Romans 1.16 and 17. It accomplishes everything that it declares, Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. This book, these words, it's how we are sanctified, that is to say, made holy, John 17, 17. It is breathed out by God. It is useful to us for teaching us, for rebuking us, telling us where we're wrong, right? Correcting and training us in every righteous thing. This book, this collection of words, so that we might be equipped for every good work. Now God revealed his plan to Joseph for his brothers, for Joseph's own sake, and for his father Jacob. Ultimately, this was done, this revelation was done to advance God's saving purposes for the people that he had set apart beginning with Abraham. That's why God did it. Likewise, God has given us, God has given us this written word to advance his own redeeming purposes. His purpose, God's purpose of electing, calling, adopting, sanctifying, and ultimately glorifying in the Son of God, in Jesus the Son of God, a people for his own possession who will be made so for the purpose of the eternal praise of the glorious grace of God. This book, this word is for that. As it says in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. We have this because it points us to Jesus. And because we have Jesus, it points us back to this. God has spoken to us by his son. Listen to him. Well, the third word uh, I see from this kind of summarizes what's going on here is suffering, suffering. We see that. 
Now, uh, in a perfect world, there would be no need for advice, right? A perfect world has perfect circumstances, perfect opportunities, and perfect people pursuing perfect goals. That's a lot of Ps. But we know that's not life, is it? It's not life. Now, this being Father's Day, maybe you'll have the opportunity to honor your father for his love, for his provision, and guidance. Now, speaking of guidance, advice, it's, uh, it's something that a dad likes to give, even when it's not solicited. You adult sons know. Dad, 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 I got it. But as for advice, just thinking about advice in general, from a dad, can you imagine a good father advising his son or daughter this way? Now listen, in life, you've got to go along to get along. Whatever you do, just, just take the path of least resistance. Don't make waves for any reason. Keep your head down, relax, and, and ride the wave wherever it takes you. Okay, I hope you see. That's just really stupid advice. I don't think even an evil father would say something like that. Even unrighteous goals involve difficulty and obstacles. How much more, how much more does a righteous life involve suffering because you're treading against the tide of evil? This is a truism that runs through the entirety of Scripture. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the way and easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Wide is the way and easy the way that leads to destruction. So take the narrow way. Pursue going through the narrow gate. Now Joseph here, he was on a righteous path. Now I'm not suggesting by any stretch that he was without sin. No, I'm not saying that. But I, I certainly can see that perhaps he lacked tact and maybe lacked humility in the way that he wore that multicolored coat and shared his dreams. But I think overarching, he was on a path to seeking, of seeking to honor the Lord. And though he did not invite it, that path involved suffering. He suffered hatred from his brothers because of his father's favor. Now understand, did he ask for his father's favor? Did he ask to be set apart and loved more than the others? Verse 4, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Do you understand what this is like? They could not speak peacefully to him. Every time he walked by, any time they were in the same place, it was pure disdain from his brothers, constant, without unrelenting disdain. Couldn't even say a kind word. Couldn't, couldn't even, even, hey, Simeon, uh, lost track of that one sheep. Figure it out yourself. Don't bug me. N not a moment. He suffered more hatred then because of the dreams he shared because it made matters worse. They hated him, verse 8, even more for his dreams and for his words. And one more time we're told of his brother's hostility at the end. Verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him. Jealousy is not, not an attractive character quality. Now, if you've experienced hostility in your family, that's really 
a difficult position to be in. And I know some have experienced that. Especially if it's been extended. And it just gives you that pit in your stomach, doesn't it? When things aren't right, when you feel at odds. But imagine that the entire family is against you because you've done what is right and righteous. So I don't doubt that Joseph suffered. And like I said, even in the next section, his brothers will multiply that suffering. Again, I mentioned earlier that I see in Joseph something that typifies Christ, especially in suffering. I can't ignore that. Jesus' own experience was one of rejection. He was rejected by the ones that claimed they were looking for him as Messiah. They should have embraced him. We're told in John 1.11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He was rejected by his own people. And Jesus experienced hatred from the world and not primarily because he healed people or helped people, but because he told them the truth about themselves and about God. Jesus told his disciples and he warned them what this would be like. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And ultimately, Jesus suffered vicariously, meaning he suffered in our place. He did that by dying on the cross. He did that in our place so that he might remove the barrier of our sin that has separated us from God. That sin that we fully committed, fully participated in, that created that barrier between us and God, Jesus died for that so that he might remove that. Peter says this in his first letter, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Jesus, the beloved son of God, revealed the truth and ultimately suffered so that he could save his own. Now, if you have trusted Christ this morning, that means you're on a righteous path. That path is going to end up with an eternal home and reward. But there are a lot of obstacles. There are a lot of obstacles in this world. The Apostle Paul encouraging the disciples of Jesus who were at uh, uh, cities called Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. It tells us it's an Acts. This is what he said to them. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. There is suffering, tribulations, difficulty. Through many. That's how we're going to get to the kingdom of God. Yet, yet the power that urges us onward is a person. We have the very confirmation of God's spirit. He, he resides within all who have trusted Christ, the Son of God. And so, as we're told in Romans 8, the spirit himself, that's the Holy Spirit, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So if you're a follower of Jesus today, that has been confirmed in you by the Holy Spirit. And if children, the Apostle Paul continues, then heirs. That's good. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. But here's the proviso. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There is no escaping suffering. If you belong to Christ today, it is not the path of least resistance. It does not go along to get along. It is treading against the tide of culture. 
and is required of us that we first suffer so that we may be glorified with him. So we should expect suffering. We should accept, expect rejection and we must, we must embrace the possibility that standing with Christ may cost us everything in this world, even possibly our lives. Even possibly our lives. 1 Peter 3, 14 tells us how to deal with that. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And for the ones who are persecuting you, he says this, have no fear of them nor be troubled, but do this, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. You do this with gentleness and respect. Understand the context of what he's teaching there. Yeah, we should be prepared to answer anyone who asks, but the context is suffering. And when you suffer for righteousness' sake and do not revile against those who are cursing you, you do not lash out in anger against those who are bringing you pain. And they ask you, what's the deal? Here's the deal. I'm a sinner. I was condemned to die. But God opened my eyes to the Son of God who died in my place on that cross. God opened my eyes to my need for him to save me. And I've trusted him. And I'm no better than you. But my confidence isn't in anything that I can do myself. My confidence is in Christ. That's gentle and respectful. That's what we should be prepared to do. Now, the story is the account of Jacob's family and his son, this dreamer. But I think more than that, it is an account that is couched in a greater story of Jesus, the Son of God, because really all of the scripture ultimately points us to Christ. It's the story of a favored, beloved, eternal Son of God who revealed the truth about God and about ourselves and who suffered to bring all who have trusted in him to be in his family forever. Let's pray together. God, we are ever mindful of the fact that there are individual stories in the Bible all assembled by you through your spirit, through men who wrote these things down, all for the purpose of putting our focus on your son, our Savior Jesus. And, uh, and God, we see him as the favored son that he is, the unique beloved son who was sent because you so loved the world so that if we would believe in him, we would not perish but have eternal life. God, strengthen us in our faith. That's what we're asking this morning. Equip us through your word, through your spirit, applying this word so that we're ready to face whatever in the days ahead.
And God, may all of our behaviors and words and the things that we, ways that we interact with the world around us give testimony to the confidence that we have in Christ. May that be true for all of us, Father. We pray it for the glory of Jesus. Amen.